Living in freedom. There, there's an interesting little boat there. I'll tell you about this boat. <clears throat> in the uh, Mariner's Museum in Newport News, Virginia, there is a special display for a rickety homemade aluminum kayak. This tiny makeshift boat seems oddly out of place in the midst of displays for impressive Navy vessels and artifacts from significant battles on the sea. But a bronze plaque tells museum visitors the story behind this kayak's historic makers. In 1966, an auto mechanic named Lorino and his wife Consuelo decided they could no longer live under the oppression of Cuba's totalitarian regime. After spending months collecting scrap metal, they pieced together a boat just barely big enough for two small people. Then Lorino jury-rigged a small lawnmower engine on the back of the kayak. After months of planning on a moonless September night, sitting back to back and wearing only their swimsuits, they set out in the treacherous straits of Florida. They had only enough water and food for a couple of days. Finally, after they had floated in open water for over 70 hours, the U.S. Coast Guard found and rescued the couple just south of Alligator Reef Light in Florida Keys. Was it worth the risk to find freedom? Lorraine thought so. Years later, he said, when one has grown up in liberty, you realize it is important to have freedom. We, live in the enormous pri- we lived in the enormous prison, which is Cuba, where one's life is not worth a crumb, where, where one goes out into the street and does not know whether one will return to one's home because the political police can arrest you without any warning and put you in prison. Before this could happen to us, we thought that going into the ocean and risking death or being eaten by sharks is a million times better than to stay suffering under political oppression. And that picture is found in the Mariner's Museum in Newport News, Virginia. Freedom. Living in freedom, we're going to talk about that today. And the reality is that freedom is the burning passion of everyone's soul. It's the way God wired us and created us. We have a desire to live in freedom as these two individuals show us. It's captured in this quote. We know it well probably from the Declaration of Independence and it's not on the screen, excuse me. Here it is. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. And our country, America, is founded on this basic premise that we are all, in God's eyes, intended to live free, to be free. And that is how we were wired. That's the desire of our heart, to be a free people. And if you go back to the very first uh, a few pages of the Bible, back to the Garden of Eden, what's the one thing Satan did? The very first thing he did when he went and lied to Adam and Eve and got them to, to sin, he, what did he do? He stole from them two things. He stole their identity in Christ and he stole their freedom. First thing, and so we have an entire Bible where, where man, at least until Jesus comes 4,000 years later, where the world is in slavery to sin and slavery to death and slavery to Satan. We are not living in the freedom that God intended for us. This world is nothing like God intended it to be. 4,000 years later, though, Christ comes to bring us freedom. So, we're going to wind up this series today 
about being an Easter people, well, next week, actually, this is going to be a, probably a two-part sermon because we're going to continue this next week. But we're going to talk about living in freedom today. What does it look like to live in freedom? What does it mean to live in freedom? In Galatians 5.1, Paul says it for us like this, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of Slavery, another easier to read translation. Christ has freed us so that we may enjoy the benefits of freedom. Therefore, be firm in this freedom and don't become slaves again. Now, at the core of this verse, there's a principle at the core of this verse that I think we need to to latch on to, and we could apply this throughout the gospel in different ways, but there is a theological truth that is intended to be or intended to influence my practical reality. God has a theological truth that is intended to influence my practical reality. Basically, that theological truth is, I am free, and so how should I live? I should live as if I am free. Now, here's the reality. The other side of this principle is simply this, is that regardless, our practical reality never changes God's theological truth. So I may not live like a free person. It doesn't mean I'm not free. It just means I'm a fool, <laughs> really. I've been set free. I need to live like a free man. What does that look like? What does that even mean? We'll unpack that today. But just understand that as Christians, that my freedom is not based on how I live, the choices I make, or my behavior. Now, yeah, I can enslave myself to sin. I can make choices that, that imprison myself. Yes, that's true. But the reality is, God's truth is, I am free. I need to live free. We're going to look at what that looks like today, how we live like the free man or woman that we are, knowing that God's choice never changes God's truth. Okay, and it kind of goes back to where we ended last week. The very last thing we said last week was God's truth is always greater than what? Our feelings. God's truth is always greater than our feelings. We need to know that. And uh, we all have feelings, but they never trump the truth of God. And the way we live never trumps the theological truth of God, in this case, that I am free. We're going to look today at, th- at, at three simple ways that we can live in freedom, and then next week probably look at three more. But here's our big idea. When Christ walked out of the grave and into our life, He set us free, so we should live free. It's that simple. That's what Galatians 5.1 says. You've been set free, so live free. And when Christ walked out of that grave and into our life, He set us free. Think about it this way. The empty tomb is kind of like the full expression of the freedom that Christ won for us. Now, our freedom was won on the cross when He hung there and said, It is finished. It was finished. The, the, the work of freedom was done on the cross, but it was three days later when Christ walked out of that grave, when He walked out of that tomb into freedom. And we all who trust and put our faith in Him walk out into freedom as well with Him. We're resurrected to life with Him. It's kind of like you work all week long, right? And, and you earn a paycheck, and then you get the paycheck the following week on like Friday, and that's the full expression of, hey, you did the work last week, you earned the money last week, and now you're getting the check, and now, you're, now you can enjoy that what you've earned. And when Christ walked out of that grave and into our life, that is when we experience the full reality of our freedom. So, three ways we have been set free today. We're going to look at three ways. And uh, we're going to see some things today, and we're going to look and think about some things differently today. There's some things I I constantly, as I'm just growing in my understanding of Scripture and God's relationship to me, just keep 
learning. What does it look like for God to work at my life? What does that look like? And there's some things in here that um, I think will uh, be encouraging to all of us. First thing is we are free from the guilt of our conscience. We're free from the guilt of our conscience. Because of the cross, because of the gospel, you are free from the guilt that weighs down your conscience. Now, sometimes, some of these things maybe at first seem a little hard to believe or a little hard to accept. Maybe we're like, I don't know about that. What's he saying there? Sometimes this is where God's theological truth kind of clashes with our practical reality and we kind of, so let's unpack this a little bit here. I'll tell you what I'm not saying and what I am saying, okay? Uh, for, For instance, I'm not saying we never feel guilty, We certainly do. I'm saying that God never uses guilt to grow us. That's not God's, that's not the the way God operates, to use guilt in our life to grow us. You know who uses guilt in your life is the enemy. Satan does. He did that with Adam and Eve right from from the get-go. He got them to sin and then he turned around and, you know, made them feel guilty and ashamed and that's exactly what satan will do in our life so it's not that we we never feel guilty it's the exact opposite we feel guilt and we need to know how to process our guilt we know how to deal how to how does god use our guilt how do we use our guilt what's the issue with guilt in our life hebrews chapter 10 here's a great place to go and just just show you real Great clarity what I'm saying here. The old system under the law of Moses in the Old Testament was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, which would be Christ, okay? Not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again, uh, were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. If they could have provided a perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped for all the worshipers would have been purified once for all and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. Understand what Hebrews is saying there? In the Old Testament, every year they went to, the, to offer their sacrifices. Year after year, they went on the Day of Atonement and they offered their sacrifices and they had to do it again year after year. And because they had to go year after year after year, one thing they never lost was the, the feelings of guilt. They never disappeared. If, if one sacrifice had been sufficient and they wouldn't have had to go back year after year, they wouldn't have continually felt guilt. And so when Christ came, and here's the reality, this system is contrasted in verse 14 with the work of Christ. And so guilt was an ongoing reality before the cross. Guilt was something that man dealt with and constantly wore them down. But after the cross, here's what it says, Hebrews 10, 14. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. What's this verse saying? This verse is saying that Jesus once for all sacrifice means Jesus died once for all people, for all sin, for all time, effectively removing our need for a guilty conscience and and for the guilt that, that wears us down. There is no need today for a guilty conscience and God has taken that guilt away. Now, we still feel guilt and the enemy puts guilt on us and we can wallow in that guilt, but that's not the way God wants us to live. 
No more yearly sacrifices and no more guilty consciences. Jesus will never go to the cross again and our sin will never require another sacrifice. When we put our trust in his once for all sacrifice, when we believed and received, we were forgiven and we were set free from the guilt of our conscience. So don't wallow in your guilt. Don't let the enemy use guilt. Instead, God wants us to exalt the cross and to magnify his grace. That's what God wants us to do. That's what God wants us to do. There's an old saying from Martin Luther. He said, love God and sin boldly. And, and Luther wasn't saying, hey, you should, you should go out and sin. But he's saying, sin boldly. When you sin, just know that the grace of God is greater than your sin. That's a powerful statement that can be very easily misconstrued. But uh, there it is. So this leads us to another question, a big question we're going to unpack today is then, if God doesn't use guilt in my life to deal with the sin in my life and help me address sin and get my life back on the right path, what does God do? How does God address sin in my life? Let's talk about that. Let's think about the Holy Spirit a minute. Let's think about the work of the Holy Spirit, how He ministers. Here's a list of the things the Holy Spirit does. He seals. We know that. He comforts. He counsels. He guides He reveals, uh, He gifts, and He convicts. Those are the things the Holy Spirit does. That's the work of the Holy Spirit, His ministry in this world today. And so the obvious question is this, well, does God deal with my sin through the Holy Spirit? Does the Holy Spirit come along and convict me of sin? So i got sin in my life, Holy Spirit comes along and... and, Bill, you shouldn't have done that. Bill, you shouldn't do that. Bill, you shouldn't think that. Is that how God deals with our sin? Let me tell you, and this might surprise some of you, and going back seven or eight years ago, I would have said, well, certainly the Holy Spirit convicts me of my sin, but I'm going to show you a different way to look at this today, and that's the reality. The Holy Spirit does not convict believers of their sin, and that's going to be one that's going to be like, wait a minute, that seems really out there. Well, let's unpack it again. John 16, 7. This is the one verse that tells us the Holy Spirit has the ministry of convicting of sin. Here's what it says, 16, 7 and on to 8. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is your advantage that I go away, Jesus says, for I do not go, if I do not go away, the helper, King James calls him the comforter, will not come to you. But if you go, I will send him to you. The Holy Spirit is called the comforter in this verse. Then in verse 8, And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. So it tells us here the Holy Spirit convicts. But did you catch who does the Holy Spirit convict? convicts the world we're not in the world we're in christ if we're a believer we're in christ we are in the spirit we're not in adam we're not in the world holy spirit and he comes and convicts them of what of sin of righteousness and of judgment he comes every anytime i'm here preaching on a sunday morning or anybody's preaching and there's an unbeliever in the room who doesn't know christ the holy spirit comes to that person and convicts them you are guilty You are guilty of your sin. You are guilty of not knowing me. Your judgment is death. And the Holy Spirit comes and convicts that person. In fact, it's really fascinating. If you do a study on conviction, and I did this this week, and I went back and I looked, if you, most of the references in the Bible to conviction are in the positive realm, in the sense that 
We have convictions. I am convicted that God will never leave me. I'm convicted that God is for me, not against me. I'm convicted that I am a child of God. I have convictions and beliefs. The negative side in that you're convicted of sin is not as prevalent when you look at that word conviction, especially when you're talking about the New Testament and after the cross. So here's the reality, though. Do you know why the Holy Spirit does not convict us of sin? Here's the reason why. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The Holy Spirit of life set us free. We are free. There is no condemnation today. So I am free, so I should live free. And so no, the Holy Spirit does not come to me and convict me of sin. Why? Because... Well, really, there's no sin that I'm guilty of. That sounds radical. Let me walk it, let me walk it through. I'm going to show you something here. Take, take the word justification, okay? <clears throat> Did you know the Holy Spirit does not convict us of sin because there is no sin to convict me of? No sin that I am guilty for. <clears throat> okay, watch this. Justification. Uh, we often use this definition for justification. It's just as if I never sinned. <clears throat> We've heard that before. We use that all the time. Justification, it's just as if I never sinned. Let's broaden that definition this morning. Let's bring it into the present tense, okay? And how about this? Justification, it's just as if I didn't just sin. So I just lost my cool, and, you know, I just yelled at Trisha or just kicked the dog or, you know, I just got mad at work or whatever I did. <clears throat> I just said something I shouldn't have said or thought something I shouldn't have thought or whatever it might be. I just sinned, and you know what? It's just as if I didn't just do that sin. It's just as if I didn't yell at Tricia. I mean, in God's eyes, I am what? I'm pure, I'm holy, I'm saint, I'm justified. See, here's the reality that's tough for us because it's like, well, but you didn't say you're sorry for that sin. You didn't apologize for that sin. You didn't acknowledge that sin. doesn't matter. Aren't you glad, think about it this way, aren't you glad that that our forgiveness is not based on our apologies, it's based on what? The blood of Christ. He said, you're justified. It's just as if you never sinned, and just as if you didn't just sin, and we can go even more radical, it's just as if I will never sin again. And yes, I will sin again. I'm going to sin tomorrow. I'm going to sin the next week. and I'm going to sin a hundred times every day, but we sin all the time. Sin is a parasite that indwells us and we struggle with sin and we do, but justification says it's just as if you never sinned, just as if you will never sin again. Because any sin you commit, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Holy Spirit doesn't come and convict me. In fact, think about this. If the Holy Spirit came and His his role was to come and convict you and me of sin, what would be the number one thing the Holy Spirit would be doing in your life and my life every day? convicting us of sin why did you just think that thought why did you just do what you just did why did you just say what you just said why did you behave the way you just behaved constantly because we sin all the time and the holy spirit would constantly be convicting me constantly poking at me constantly saying bill get your act together that's not the way that's not the ministry of the holy spirit in fact, I had a great quote this week. Think of, think of it this way. The Holy Spirit is called the comforter, not the afflictor. He's the, we just read that. 
John 16, 7, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, the helper, the comforter. He's not the afflictor. He's not there constantly tapping you on the shoulder saying, hey, don't think that thought. Hey, you shouldn't have done that. Hey, you know. The reality is when you think about conviction, even think about conviction, what does conviction entail? It, it, it entails a courtroom. It entails, it entails a trial. It entails a conviction. You're guilty. But I'm not guilty because Christ has taken away my sin one time. One sacrifice, the once for all sacrifice, took away all sin of all people for all time. And if you put your faith and trust in Christ, His forgiveness takes care of all of your sin. 16, 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. John 16, 13. Think about that. Think about the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Part of His ministry is to, is to lead us into all truth. He will do that. So He will certainly illuminate the Scriptures to me and He'll show the Scriptures to me and He'll help me understand the Scriptures and when my life is contrary to them, Sure, sure, that's a part of what he does. But think about this verse in light of the next passage. I want to show you a passage, and I've never looked at this passage like this before until recently, and it's a fascinating passage. Think about, and when you read this, this next passage with me, look for the capital S on spirit and the small s on spirit because it's a fascinating reality <clears throat> that at work in my life is the Holy Spirit along with my spirit. I'm a new creation. My spirit was quickened and made alive. And I've got a new spirit, but I've also got the Holy Spirit. And they kind of work together. And listen to what it says here, Romans 8. For all who are led by the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God, are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery, meaning my life. I've been set free. My spirit has been quickened and made alive. It's not a spirit of slavery. And I don't need to fall back into fear. I don't need to be afraid of being enslaved. I'm not. I've been set free in here. But you have received the spirit of adoption, that's the Holy Spirit of adoption, as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. So the Holy Spirit, His ministry, the Spirit of truth comes to me and tells me the truth and gives me the truth. And we see in the passage here some powerful things <clears throat> about the work of the Spirit. We're led by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of truth leads us into all truth. That's part of His ministry in life. <clears throat> the passage here speaks to our, our identity in Christ, that we are sons and daughters of the Most High. There's the Spirit of adoption, and the Holy Spirit is, is kind of reinforcing that to me. It tells us we no longer have that spirit of slavery. We've been set free. We are free, so we should live free. I'm free in here. I'm free in whose I am. I'm free from the guilt and condemnation that used to consume me. And then finally, did you notice that? His Spirit, the Holy Spirit bears witness with my spirit, comes along and, and speaks to my spirit, brings the truth to my spirit, reminding me that, yes, my identity is in Christ. So he, here's what the Holy Spirit does. Here's His ministry in your life and mine, okay? His ministry is not to convict me of sin. It is to comfort me when I sin and to convince me that I am still a child of God. He's the one that comes along. See, when I sin, what does the enemy do? Enemy says, you must not be saved. Boy, if you were saved, how could you do that? You are the scum of the earth. 
boy, look what you just did. And the Holy Spirit comes along. He doesn't convict me and say you're guilty. He comes along and says, hey, it's okay. That's all right. We'll get it next time. You are a child of the Most High God. You need to know who you are in Christ. And we've said throughout the series, how does God motivate us to live the way He wants us to live? By reinforcing our identity in Him. That all those behaviors we look at are not behaviors to live out. It's who I am in Christ. And He's constantly reminding me of that simple reality. Wow. So He speaks one of the greatest truths to me that my identity is in Christ and not in my behaviors. And that's exactly the opposite of what the enemy does who comes along and tries to define me by my behaviors and say, you blew it, you have, you're worthless. Look what you just did. Oh, isn't that just incredible? Two other verses here, Ephesians 4, 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. How do we grieve the Holy Spirit of God? When I don't trust Him, when I don't listen to Him, because He wants what's best for me. He wants me to live in my freedom and to live out my identity in Christ. That's His will for my life, and it grieves Him when I don't listen to him and trust him. And then it says, do not quench the spirit. And we just talked about the work, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, right? And what it is. So don't quench the Holy Spirit in your life when he comes to comfort you, when he comes to reassure you, when he comes to build you up. When he speaks to you, when he is the spirit of truth leading you into all truth, don't quench his work in your life, no. Let him. Do the work he was intended to do. Let him do the work God intended him to do. So the first thing this morning, we are free from the guilt of our conscience. We are free from the guilt. We need to know that. We'll talk more about that as we go through this. But anyway, we are free, second, from the power of sin. We are free from the power of sin. So there's this looming question out there. We're going to continually unpack it. So if God doesn't deal with my sin, help me deal with my sin and get my life on track. If he doesn't do that through guilt or even through the Holy Spirit convicting me, saying I'm guilty of something, if God doesn't do that, then the question is how does he do that? Well, here's one of the ways. He says, well, you know what? You're free from sin. You're free from the power of sin. One of the ways God helps me process this whole issue and, and deal with my sin is he says, well, you're, you're free from it. How revolutionary is that? He sets us free from the power of sin. Now, remember in this series we said this, that sin is not a nature that defines me. It is a parasite that indwells me. Big difference there. I'm not two people. I'm not schizophrenic spiritually. I am... In Christ or I'm in Adam, one or the other. And if I am in Christ, I am defined by Him. But sin indwells me. We see that in Romans 6. It's like this parasite that indwells me. And we'll see how sin works. Look at Romans 6, 5, and 7. For if we have been united with Him in a resurrection like His, we know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So note, I was crucified with Christ to be set free from sin. I am no longer enslaved to sin. Goes on in verse 11 though. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Do you see the principle there we started out the sermon with? 
right? What is the principle here? Well, the principle is this, okay? When Christ walked out of the grave and into our life, He set us free so we should live free. In other words, it's like this. I was set free. That's the theological truth. So I should live free. That's the practical reality. Apply it to verse 11. I've been counted dead to sin. That's the theological truth. So I should what? I should consider myself dead to sin. And when I'm tempted by sin, I need to just say, hey, I'm dead to you. I don't want you. I don't want to do that. Now, I'm not saying it's always that easy, but that's the attitude we have to take, that I am dead to sin, it has no power over me, and I really don't want to engage that sin that is tempting me. So again, how does God deal with sin and its power in my life? By convicting us of it? No, by rendering it powerless and setting me free from it. Now, if I'm free from sin's power, why is it still such a force in my life? Look at verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Let me ask you a question. Who is really passionate about sin? Are you passionate about sin? Do you get up and say, I can't wait today to get out and sin all that I can because I have grace. Is that how you, you know? Who's passionate about sin? Sin. Sin is this parasite in me that is self-feeding itself and wants to grow and wants to take me over. And sin is passionate about sin. That's where the passion for sin comes from. And the reality is God says sin has been rendered powerless. Sin has no power. We often say things like, well, the devil made me do it or sin got the best of me. And you know what? Those really are not true statements. The, the reality is sin has no power in our life. We've talked about this again. Uh, then why do I, what, where's the struggle? The struggle's in our mind. Do I set my mind on the spirit, on the truth, or do I set my mind on the flesh? Do I think like I'm not saved? Do I think like I'm not a, a Christian? Do I think like I don't have the identity of Christ? Do I think like the old man? Do I think like the new man? And that's where, that's where, that's where the battle is won and lost. It's true in my life. It's true in your life. That's the simple reality. Hmm. It's kind of like this. Got the little kid, right? Laying in bed and screams all of a sudden. The mom and dad come in and he says, there's a monster under my bed. And he's all freaked out by a monster. Now maybe that monster is a, is a toy that he can't quite make out in the dark. Or maybe the cat got trapped in his room. Question is, is there really a monster under his bed? No. But he can lay there in bed and be traumatized by that supposed monster and, and, and it can keep him up and it can steal his sleep. And, can, and that's the way we are with sin. Sin's been rendered powerless. It has no power in our life. And yet we lay in bed and we're like, there's a monster under the bed. Sin's out to get me. I can't seem to break this battle with this certain sin. And the theological truth is, that sin has no power, you are dead to sin. And the truth is, you don't even want to sin. It's not you who wants to sin, it is sin who wants to sin. Going on, and we look in verse 15, or verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. So sin has no power, no dominion. It's been rendered powerless. Verse 15, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? Well, of course not. That's stupid and we don't want to. By no means. Do you not know that if you, are, if you present yourselves uh, to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Okay, but the reality is, look what he says, but if 
thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of, excuse me, of teaching to which you were committed and have been, ha, having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. So what is, what is Paul saying here? Paul's saying, I was a slave to sin and unrighteousness and I wanted to sin. It was great. And then I got saved. Now I'm a slave to what? I'm a slave to righteousness. Now I'm a new creation in Christ. I have a new heart. I have God's desires. And I actually want to do what God wants to do. And that is true. We may not think that's true. The reality is, take any sin you struggle with, and we indulge that sin, and when we're done, what do we feel? We feel like, oh, why did I do that? I didn't want to do that. That's the reality. So how does God motivate us today? He doesn't motivate us with guilt. He doesn't motivate us by convicting us. He renders sin powerless, and He gives me His desires. That is how He motivates me to live out my Christian life. And remember what we've said in this series, that anybody who is in Christ, if you are in Christ, if you are in the Spirit, right? And then you begin to think like you're in the flesh and walk like you're in the flesh and live like you're in the flesh. What's the end result of that? It's conflict. Anybody who is in Christ, who lives like they are in the world or in the flesh, you end up in conflict. I don't know about you, I don't like that conflict. I've experienced that conflict. I don't like it. I don't think we like, I don't think we like, listen, let's be honest, <clears throat> there are some people in this world, they like drama in their life. Have you ever met people like just like drama in their life? There's always drama going on around them. I, I think us as believers, we don't want that kind of drama. We don't want that conflict. We don't, we actually have a new heart we're a new creation. We have the desires of God beating within us. So I am a slave of righteousness who does not want to live in conflict. How does God deal with and motivate me to deal with my sin? Because there's conflict whenever I sin and I'm unhappy. And yeah, in the short term, maybe that sin had a little pleasure to it, but when it's done, it's like, man, I don't want to live this way. And the more that we set our mind on the Spirit, the more that we remind ourselves who we are in Christ, the more we think in that way, the more we are going to find victory over sin. The truth is, circling back to our first freedom, it's not the Holy Spirit who convicts me. Think about this. It's better to say that I can convict myself. I have convictions. I have beliefs. I know who I am in Christ. And when I behave a certain way, I'm the one who comes back and says, hey, that's not who I am. That's not who I want to be. I don't want that conflict in my life. And that's the reality. At the same time, also catch this, and I didn't have time to unpack this thought this morning. While we are free from the guilt of our conscience, also understand we do have a conscience. We do have a conscience. Sir, I have a conscience. That's my, my conscience is, is me probably convicting me, saying, hey, you know what, that's, not right, and I need to watch that, that that conviction doesn't turn into guilt and that I'm not convicting myself of being guilty and, and being something I'm not. <clears throat> I need the Holy Spirit to come along and remind me who I am in Christ. I think another way to understand it is the Holy Spirit is not my conscience. You have an unbeliever in the world today, they have a conscience. They don't have the Holy Spirit. Our Holy Spirit's not 
our conscience. My whole, the Holy Spirit is my comforter, not my afflictor. So I'm the one who really comes to myself sometimes and says, hey, uh, you know, why'd you do that? You know, you need to not do that. And the Spirit comes along, the Holy Spirit comes along and says, yeah, you shouldn't have done that, but you know, that's okay. God's grace is greater. When Christ walked out of the grave and into our life, He set us free so we should live free. Here's our third freedom this morning. We are free from the fear of the unknown. We're free from the fear of the unknown. So something else Jesus does, He sets us free from our fears. And there are a lot of fears we could identify. But what I find fascinating is one of our greatest fears is the fear of the unknown. And what's one of the greatest unknowns in the world today? What's the greatest unknown for most the average person in the world today? Death, right? When I die, what's going to happen to me? Now, we who are Christians, we kind of know what's going to happen to us, but I'll tell you, I really don't know what it's going to look like, and I don't know what heaven's actually going to... You know, I have a lot of questions too. But take that person who has no relationship with Christ, that unbeliever, and death is a huge unknown, and, and that's our greatest fear, they say, is the fear of death. But Christ has set us free from the fear of the unknown and our greatest fear of death. That's the reality. A person's fear of the unknown is best seen in their fear of death. And what's really cool is the gospel. You know, the gospel, the gospel addresses all the basic issues of our life. It, it, it answers the biggest questions we have. And the biggest question the world has, it has is, what happens when I die? <clears throat> and the gospel will tell you what happens when you die. It has the answers to the biggest questions. The gospel is such a practical theology. I talk about this reality of there's this theological truth and then there's my practical reality. reality. And what we need is a practical theology that comes along where God's truth is my practical reality every day a practical theology that fits into my life in revelations uh, the, the the apostle john is given a revelation to write <clears throat> and uh, so <clears throat> he's just getting started on this and god is just speaking to him and he has this encounter where he even sees jesus christ himself and listen to what he says when i saw him when i saw christ i fell at his feet as though dead but he laid his right hand on me saying <clears throat> fear not don't be afraid I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the the, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. He says, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid of of death. You don't have to be afraid of hell, hell, Hades. You don't, have to be, you don't have to be afraid of those things. I have the keys. Because of the cross, I have gone and I have secured victory over, our, over man's greatest fear, the fear of death, the fear of eternity. What a beautiful reality that is. What an amazing reality. Now, there is a great picture of this whole thing, <clears throat> this fear of the unknown in the Easter story. And it's when Jesus Christ goes into that tomb right he's in there and when jesus is in the tomb he's in the dark wouldn't you say it's kind of like he's in the dark for three days jesus is in the dark and the reality is is that when jesus is in the dark so are his followers they're all in the dark and they're all hiding they're all afraid of the unknown what's tomorrow holding for us will the authorities come and knock down our door and drag us off and if they don't what next we've been following him for three years we we hitched our entire life to him what next 
Now we're the idiots who just followed this guy who turned out to be a nothing. And there's this great fear of the unknown. So here's the, the reality. When Jesus was in the dark, so were his followers. Yet here's the truth. Jesus was never really in the dark. So their fear was unfounded. Even though Jesus looked like he, was, he wasn't, Jesus knew the whole time what was going on. He was never in the dark. And if Jesus is never in the dark, we never have to be in the dark either. We never have to be afraid of the unknown. We have been set free from the unknown. So their fear was unfounded. There was no monster under the disciples' bed. No. There was nothing to be afraid of. You know, here's the reality. We, we talk about being Easter people and we're living in the reality of the resurrection every day. Can I tell you something about the unknown? Right? The unknown is often scary, right? Can I tell you what it looks like if you know Christ as your Savior? It looks like this. The unknown shouldn't be scary. It should be exciting. It should be just like that tomb that's all sealed up, just waiting to explode. What's God going to do next? That should be our attitude. Whenever we come to those kind of those, those tomb-like moments and, and there's something that we're in the dark and, and we don't know what's going on and what's God doing next and, and, and we're just kind of like, we should just be like, oh man, God, what's God going to do next? Following Christ should be incredibly exciting. It should be incredibly exciting. Jeremiah 29, 11. Here's a verse we've heard it a hundred times. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. The context of this verse is that the Israelites, due to their unfaithfulness to God, God had them taken captivity by the Babylonians. 1,300 years earlier, he gave them a promise that one day they would be a great nation and they would have a great land and they would have a great king and they would rule over the entire world and they would be blessed abundantly. And he gave those promises to Abraham and passed them on to Abraham's children all the way through Moses. And here 1,300 years later, because of their unfaithfulness to God, God had them taken captive into Babylon. But he told them that after 70 years, he'd set them free. That they could go back to their homeland after 70 years. And it's in that context that he writes this, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. And there's a reality that when we are in the dark, we need to simply know this. When we are facing the unknown, we simply need to know that it's not unknown to God. God knows. For I know declares the Lord. And, and God knows in your life and God knows in my life what he's doing. God knows what's going to happen to us. God knows what's coming. There's no unknown. There's no in the dark that we need to be afraid of. <clears throat> Sometimes in the dark we ask that question, has God forgotten me? Has God lost sight of me? Does God not see me? That's so far from the truth. God will never leave us. God will never forsake us in fact you know what's really interesting is that you know who speaks to us in the dark oftentimes the enemy or sin and says you're in the dark you know you're being condemned for something you did and comes and pronounces us guilty and and sometimes it's true sometimes the consequence of our sin leaves us in a dark place but we're not being judged or condemned the holy spirit is there to comfort us in the dark, he was there to comfort the disciples, and uh, we need to simply know that. 
I will never leave you or forsake you. Let me give you one last verse here, 2 Timothy 1.7. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. God gave us a spirit of self-control, and that is not the Holy Spirit. God didn't give you the Holy Spirit. God made your spirit, quickened your spirit. You're a new creation. Your spirit is alive in you, and your spirit is not a spirit of fear. You have been set free in the very core of who you are, set free to live free, and the Holy Spirit will come and bear witness to your spirit and remind your spirit you're free. You're free from the guilt of your conscience. You're free from the power of your sin. You're free from the fear of the unknown. You are free. Live as if you are free. <clears throat> but here's the thing. Think about this. When it says we've been given the spirit of self-control, you can find that at least two other places, probably more, but self-control is one of the fruits of the Spirit, right? Seven fruits of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. It's one of the, seven, the, the nine fruits of the Spirit. And then self-control, it's one of those things that God says an elder has to have, self-control. Well, what is self-control really? I'll give you a couple ways to look at self-control here before we go this morning. One way is self-control is an alternative to circumstance control. Because most of us live our life under circumstance control. And whatever go is going on around me controls me. And if something going on around me is a huge unknown, that controls me. And I'm like, I need to know I'm free from my circumstances. I'm, I'm, there's the circumstance control, yeah. They, they should not control me. I am controlled by the Holy Spirit. I, I am controlled by the fact that I have been set free. That's the reality. We need to know that. Instead of being controlled by my circumstances, being controlled by my fears of the unknown and by those circumstances that are out of my control. That's right, right? Circumstances that are out of our control and I need to know that I can live at peace and I can live free. And then think about this last thing here. Self-control is living in freedom. Self-control is living in freedom. That's the reality. It's living in freedom. It's living in freedom from guilt, sin, circumstance, and the fear of the unknown. Self-control lives in freedom and doesn't let sin condemn me. Self-control realizes that I have control over sin. I have been set free from sin. Self-control doesn't let my circumstances, even the unknown, paralyze me. Wow, isn't that great stuff? I have been set free to live free. So what did we learn this morning? What did we learn this morning? Uh, when Christ walked out of the grave and into our life, he set us free so we should live free. So we are free from the guilt of our conscience. We are. Just know that. And the once for all sacrifice of Christ, he died once for all people, for all sin, for all time, effectively removing our guilty conscience. And the Holy Spirit's ministry is not to convict me of sin. It is to comfort me when I sin and to convince me that I am still a child of God. We also learned this, that we are free from the power of sin. We learned that God helps me deal with my sin by rendering it powerless and by making me a slave to righteousness. Meaning, I want to do what is right and not wrong. I don't want to live in the conflict that comes from from living opposite of, of, of my behavior and, or my identity in Christ. And then three, we are free from the fear of the unknown, meaning with God, the unknown can be exciting. Just know that today and that self-control. It's living in freedom. We've been set free to live free. 
Let me leave you with this last picture here. I'm going to jump ahead on these questions. You can walk through these. There's some really good questions today to help you unpack this message. But let me just take you to this last picture here and just think about that opening picture of that rickety old boat they made out of aluminum, right? And uh, Consuelo and Luciando, wherever the, the, the couple that left, escaped the political prison they were in there in Cuba. And, uh, and, I, and I just think we need to look at this picture and realize what God has secured. God didn't take aluminum. God took some, God took some, some wood, took a couple of trees or took a tree, however he did it. And, and God made a cross, And then he hung on that cross and then he went into a tomb and he walked out of that tomb and into our life and that is how God has given us ultimate freedom. Not just political freedom, not just national freedom, but but true spiritual freedom that we can live in freedom every single day of our life. We have been set free, so we should live free. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for these words today. I thank you for how much they spoke to me. I thank you the Holy Spirit, Lord, is not an afflictor. He's a comforter. He's a friend. He is here to continually help me become all that you want me to be in Christ. He constantly reminds me of who I am. He is the spirit of truth. He just tells the truth. And the truth is, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation because of grace. And the truth is, I am a son I, and there are daughters here today. We are sons and daughters of the Most High God. And your spirit bears witness with our spirit that we don't have a spirit of, 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 of sin. We don't have a spirit of slavery. We have been set free in the deepest recesses of who we are. We need to live free. Today, Lord, I want to ask each person, I want you to just speak to each person, bless each person today. And wherever they're struggling to live in freedom. Will you just open their eyes today in their own life and just help them know that they are free, wherever that struggle is. If it's a sin, if it's a circumstance, if it's a relationship, wherever they're struggling to live in freedom, may they understand they have been set free to live free. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.